And uh, last week, if you were with us, we looked at the panorama of the tabernacle and, and I took you around the world for free, I might add. Took you around the world, showed you all the great religious sites of the world. And then uh, we looked at the great Hindu temple. We looked at um, the mosque, obviously, in Mecca. We looked at St. Peter's Basilica, all these great buildings. We looked at the Buddhist uh, place in India, I believe it was, or Myanmar, I think it was. Marvelous buildings. And then we went to God's design. Remember, I told you it was God's design for his dwelling place, his first earthly dwelling place outside of the, of the Garden of Eden, obviously. And it was such a simple structure compared, and that's just how our God works, you know. When you you look at God and the way he does things, everything is counterintuitive to how the world would do it, everything. Um, We were doing a little thing with the kids. If you remember just before Christmas, I showed you the video um, about Jesus the Game Changer, and we looked at humility. Do you remember the video I showed? Hopefully you do, where how Jesus changed the definition of what humility was. Um, humility was looked upon as a vice in the Roman Greco world. That to be uh, humble was, was something that, that you weren't to do. And actually, if you were great, you were to talk about it. And if, and if somebody was great, the person that was with them was obliged to talk about them because they were great. And actually, humility was when you were humbled by an outside force. That's the Old Testament prophets talk about the humble people, usually in the hands of an oppressor, and how Jesus came along and he changed the game. We were looking at one of those videos with the kids uh, this afternoon. There's there's 10, and we were looking at the first one. And the first one was just talking about Jesus and and the evidence of him and how much evidence there was that he was actually a person that walked the the earth. But then we're talking about Jesus as the game changer and how that God is counterintuitive. That this guy, he looked at Wikipedia and he basically analysed it from a data set point of view. And what he did was he came up with these categories where he filtered the information through as to what a great person was. And then he ran it through Wikipedia that has articles for millions and millions of people. And then you get a list of the top 10. And the ranking system was, if the Wikipedia article was long, obviously that person had some more importance or relevance in the world. The longer the article, the more, more, more about them. And then the volume of the number of articles. And they did all this. So you get a list of the 10 people most, most referenced in Wikipedia. So Hitler's in there, for say. But number one is Jesus. Number one is Jesus because of all the, all the evidence. And he was talking about how Jesus is the game changer, this little group of Galileans, and, and this man that left nothing materialistically, but yet left this great teaching that took over the world. And the counterintuitive nature of it is that they said that all the leaders that have birthed anything, um, that the day after their death, you could look at it and see that they had left empires, They had left large followerships. They had left money, wealth, all that sort of stuff. But you look at the day after Jesus' death, and he had left nothing materialistically. He had no followers around him, really. They had had fled a lot of them. And he was hung naked upon a cross. And that's counterintuitive to how any great movement behind any great leader is birthed. And it's just a picture of how God works. And the tabernacle is exactly that because this is God's design. Now, 
I said last time round that we were studying this, and this was the Old Testament, and some people might say, well, why, why study the Old Testament? What's the point in this? Because, you know, it's about Jesus, it's about the gospel of grace, and it's about the New Testament. We're just to read the red letters, and we're to pray for power, and just stay in the parables, and that'll be that. And we don't need to go in the Old Testament, because that's a different type of God, this God that was uh, all interested in war, and all this sort of stuff, people will say. And the Old Testament gets left out. And a lot of Christians don't really know it. They may know Genesis a little bit, but as far as going into the prophets and the writings, no idea. But here's the thing, and this is why we're studying, we study a lot of the Old Testament here as well as the New Testament. I believe in the importance of the New Testament. Absolutely, I do. I believe in the importance of the Old Testament. But here's what I don't believe in. I don't believe in levels of importance in the Word of God. Because my bibliology and my theology... Leads me to 2 Timothy 3.16, I say it all the time, all scripture is given by inspiration, theonoustos, literally the breath of God, God breathed. As I'm speaking here, I'm really breathing all over you, so take what you will from that. But it's the air coming through my vocal cords, it's the breath that's formed in the words. Theonoustos, God breathed. So I believe that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means from Genesis to Revelation. It doesn't include maps, but it includes Genesis to Revelation. It's God's word. So when I look at it, I say there may be things that are more relevant for me in the season that I'm in, but I don't look at it and go, that's Old Testament, that's not important. Because it's God's word. It's God's word. So if we stand and we say, well, Genesis to Revelation, it's inspired of God, and the, part of that is that the Old Testament is relevant and important. That puts us in good company. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24 tonight. Luke 24. I'm going to take you to verse 13 of Luke chapter 24. Because if we think the Old Testament's important, we're in good company. Luke 24, verse 44. No, sorry, verse 13, first of all. Sorry, got ahead of myself. Luke 24, verse 13. The Lord of God says this, and we know this story, but let me read it again. And behold, two of them that went the same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about threescore furlongs, and they talked together of all the things that had happened, what had happened, the crucifixion. And it came to pass that when they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communication are these that you have one with another as you walk and as are sad? And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which have come to pass there in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death, and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have been redeemed, should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and a certain woman also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulchre. 
And when they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it even so as the woman had said, but him they saw not. Then he said unto them, O fools, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Ought not Christ, Messiah, to have suffered these things and to enter into glory? And this is what I want you to notice, verse 27. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them all the scripture, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So Jesus takes these folks, and they've seen and heard what's going on, points them to the fact that the prophets have pointed to this. Then he takes them to Moses, the law, the Pentateuch. Then he takes them to the prophets, and he shows them all the things pertaining to himself. Move down to verse 44 of the same chapter. Luke 24, verse 44. Here Jesus with the disciples, and he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then he opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. When we look at the Old Testament and we say that it's important, we are in good company for Christ himself said to them, these things are important. Why are they important? Because they all point to him. So when we study the tabernacle, which is what we're going to do tonight, we are seeing what is in the, in, in the Old Testament is, is revealed then in the New Testament. Jesus points back and he says with the people that he's in contact with after his resurrection, he points them to the Old Testament scriptures, the law, the prophets, and the writings, and he said, these things all point to me. Now, what a Bible study that would have been. I mean, I'm good. I ain't that good. I'm joking. I'm joking. That's not very humble. I'm joking. But Jesus took them to the Old Testament. So who are we to come along and say, the Old Testament doesn't matter? Here's the extension of what you're saying. Jesus doesn't matter that much. Because it's him in there. And when we get to the tabernacle, we're going to see Jesus, as we unpack all of these details, as we go through, we're going to see Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And I absolutely believe these are the places where Christ would have camped at when he was teaching them and showing them him in the Old Testament. I absolutely believe that. He would have started at Genesis, worked his way through, but I believe he'd have spent some time here. Exodus and Leviticus and the tabernacle, and the offerings, and the feasts, all pointing to Christ, all shadows, pictures. So what we want to do tonight is we're moving along in our study. Last week we looked at the kind of overview of what we were going to do, the panorama of the tabernacle. Tonight we're going to have a look at the purpose of the tabernacle. Why did God design it? Remember, this is God's design. So why did God design it and command it to be built? Why did he ask Moses to do it? What was its function? What was it going to perform? Turn with me to Exodus uh, chapter 25. And this is where we'll really uh, begin and have a look. And there is going to be um, a bit of scripture flipping tonight, just by nature of this, because we are leaning into somewhat of, of, of Bible study, as much as it is expositional preaching. 
But we want to look at these things in chapter 25 of Exodus. We looked at this, I think, last time around. We pick up in verse number 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering. Of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart, you shall make my offering, take my offering. And this is the offering. You shall take of them gold and silver and brass, and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair. Now we're going to have a look at all this when we get, when we get through the tabernacle. So don't worry too much. But these things are all important. They're not random. And ram skins dyed, with, uh, dyed red and badger skins. We'll have a look at that. It could be translated better, I think. And we'll, we'll talk about that when we get there. Uh, skins and shittim wood or acacia wood. Uh, verse 6, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil, for sweet incense, onyx stones, stones to be set in the ephod, and in the breastplate. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them, according to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. And the verses that I want you to take a little focus on is verse number 8. Let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. Verse 9, according to all that I show thee. Skip a little couple of chapters on into chapter 29. And verse 39. Now this is the section we're dealing with the offerings, but we will get there in our study eventually. But I want to just pick up on a little point. Verse 39. The one lamb that thou shalt offer in the morning, and the other lamb thou shalt offer at evening. And the one, and with the one lamb, a tenth deal of flour mingled with the fourth part of a hen of beaten oil, fourth part of a hen of wine for a drink offering. And the other lamb thou shalt offer at evening, and shall do thereunto according to the meat offering of the morning, and according to the drink offering thereof, for a sweet savour and offering made by fire unto the Lord. So don't worry too much about that. We'll get to that when we get there. But this is the, this is the point I want to focus on. Verse 42. This shall be a, continue, a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, where I will meet you to speak there unto thee. And there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. And I will sanctify the tabernacle of the congregation, the altar. I will sanctify also both Aaron and his sons to minister me, minister to me in the priest's office. And I will dwell among the children of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, that brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So in those two little sections, what we're, what we're pulling out, that, that there's a twofold purpose that is revealed for the tabernacle, as we've read there in Scripture. Um, remember, this is a divine conception, and it is a human construction, but the pattern is from God, and it's his purposed place, and he has a purpose for it, and it's revealed. And there's two aspects to the, the purposes. So number one, the tabernacle had an immediate purpose. It had an, a purpose for right there, where they were, in their context, at their time. God had a purpose for the tabernacle. But there was also an ultimate purpose. So yes, it was a, a purpose for, there, for them as they wandered in the wilderness. But then the ultimate purpose looks a little bit later down the line 
of what it pictures and represents. So that's what we're going to have a look at uh, tonight. So the first thing then, if we want to think about this, we want to think about the immediate purpose. What was the immediate purpose? The immediate purpose was to help the children of Israel come away from Egypt. Now they had been in Egypt for a long time. They'd been in captivity for a long time. And they came, they came, they were delivered by God. God had intervened in the, in the life of, of, of his people and he had delivered them out of Egypt. But now they're coming out and now they need some way to worship. And that's what Exodus moving into Leviticus is. That's what people have said before, that Exodus is the great story of deliverance as God takes his people out of Egypt, a picture of the world. Leviticus is the great book where God gets the world out of his people and shows them how to worship and come to God the correct way. So when we think about the immediate uh, purpose of the tabernacle, number one, it was to provide them a place of worship. They had come out of Egypt, and now they're together as this band, this, this two to three million people, whatever the number is there, we can't be absolutely sure, but it's a large number of people. They needed a place to worship. Now, Turn to Exodus chapter 32. Again, this is all within this time frame. God has given Moses these plans. As God has given Moses these plans, what happens? The people try to do this for themselves. This is what's going on in chapter 32 of Exodus. So chapter 32 of Exodus and verse number 1 says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount... The people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we want not what has become of him. So again, they're impatient. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons and of your daughters. Bring them to me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a gravening tool. After he had made a molten calf, they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Israel. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. So what's going on here? Let me, let me, let me, let me kind of put this in the picture, because sometimes we just think this is just rank idolatry. It's rank rebellion from those people because they get impatient. But there's a context to what they're doing. And the context of what they're doing is they have been in Egypt, surrounded by Egypt and its pantheon of gods in animal form, half human, half animal. And they've come out of Egypt and they've been delivered, but they, they, they this this process of, of worshipping God has been watered down and filtered and whatever in their time in, in, in Egypt. They come out and now they need to worship their God. And Moses is on the mount and he's receiving the instructions on how to worship God. And the people get impatient. Aaron thinks about something to do and what does he do? He does what he knows, what he's seen. So he, this calf is formed, but notice verse 5 tells us it's an altar unto God. It's a feast dedicated unto the Lord. So what they're doing is they're worshipping God in their way. And that's always wrong. And that's what that picture is. It's idolatry, really, but it's a, 
<laughs> it's, it's not idolatry from a sinister sense. It's idolatry from this is what we know and this is what we're going to try and do and we want to worship God this way. But the tabernacle and all the things in it is God saying, no, this is how you do it. Because they needed a place to worship. So when the Israelite came, you can just see the background there of the tabernacle, that's what they came to. They came to the place of worship. And what they had in Egypt was no ordered system. As they come out of Egypt, they try and do it for themselves. And it's an abomination. Of course it is. But this is no different than what people do today when we try and worship God our own way. Listen, folks. You and I do not determine how God is worshipped. That's out of order. That's the man before the master. God determines how he is worshipped. I said this to you before that um, I teach Proverbs down in New Tribes Mission and, and you know, the principle that the, the fear of the Lord is beginning of worship. And I tell them what that is, is it's not like we're all calling from God. The fear of the Lord is the correct worship of God. Reverence for who he is and what he is. And then everything is filtered through that. That I am nothing compared to God, so we worship him his way. What's going on in the wilderness at this point is that people are saying, no, we're going to worship you, God. You're going to get this glory, but let us do it. And that happens all the time in Christendom today. That's where we've got, where we've got to in the church at Hall because we've decided how we worship God. And he's to bow down to our form of worship. That, that's a nonsense. That's nothing different than what happened in Exodus 32. So the tabernacle is given by, by God is that God is going to give them a place where they can worship. The tabernacle it was a place of meeting, a tent of meeting, where God met with Moses, with Aaron and the people and revealed himself to them. Exodus 29 tells us that. We don't have time to look at it. But it was a place or a tent of uh, meeting. So first of all, in the immediate purpose category, this was to be a place of worship. That's why God designed it, gave it to Moses and said, build this. The people need a place to worship me. But not only was it to be a place of worship, it was to be a place of witness. Turn to Numbers chapter 17. Number 17, and verse number 7. <clears throat> Notice the description. Moses laid the rods. This is dealing with the tabernacle here. Moses laid up the rods before the Lord in the tabernacle of witness. In the tabernacle of witness. So the tabernacle is called the tent of meeting. It's a place of worship. But it's also called the Tabernacle of Witness. It's a, 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 a place to be a witness. What is it a witness of is the question you should be asking. Well, I'm glad you asked the question because I'm going to give you the answer. Number one, it was a witness to the presence of God. Turn to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40, verse 33.
Exodus 40 and verse 33, he says, And he reared up the court round about the tabernacle and the altar, set up the hanging of the court gate. So this is the, the, the perimeter, the, the linen, white linen perimeter that runs round it. So Moses finished the work. Verse 34, Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because of the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And when the cloud... Uh, we'll just leave it there, actually. So we'll leave it there. We'll not go on. So the cloud that uh, sat upon, look at verse 38, just moving on a bit. For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night, in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So number one, this place was to be a witness. What was it a witness of? It was a witness of the presence of God. The cloud was a witness of the presence of God amongst the people. So this, this event happened with Shekinah glory, the presence of God, this manifestation of God uh, overcame the, the uh, tabernacle area. And for the people around, then it was symbolic to them. They knew that God was with them. So the tabernacle in the wilderness was a witness to the presence of God. It was also a witness to the purity of God. Um, the words tabernacle themselves carried the thought of holiness with them. Over 30 times in Exodus alone, the word holy um, is, is found in relation to the tabernacle. This was a holy place. Why was it a holy place? Because God was there. God was there. You have the court that, that prevented anyone getting in. They could only come through the gate, and then that would only be the priests. But then you get into the court, which was holy ground, which is also called the holy place. You move in a little bit, and you have the, the first section of the little tent part, which is called the holy place. And then the next little section where the Ark of the Covenant was, the most holy place. This, this is associated with holiness from the very door all the way through. It's a holy place. So to the Jew, to the, the ones that are gathered around, it was a place of witness to the presence of God, but also then the purity of God. And of course, the sacrifices tie in with that because we know without the shedding of blood, there could be no remission of sin. And how could people enter in without the blood being shed to come before uh, God? So it's a, it's a witness to the presence of God, to the purity of God. It's also a witness to the protection of God. We've looked at this in Exodus 40 and, and verse 34 and verse 38. The cloud by day, the fire by night. Again, that is a witness to the protection of God. The cloud by day provides cover from the sun. And if you've been in the Middle East, you've done Israel, you'll, 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 you'll know what it's like there. There's not a lot of shade. And when the sun comes out, especially at midday, and it's right above you, it will toast you. It will toast you. And if you're doing any trips, tours or trips, and you're going along, if you're going along the old Jer Jericho Road, for example, and you look out and it's kind of wildernessy, you'll see these little uh, 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 cloud shadows in the ground, sporadically. And they're the places of shade. So this 
presence of God, the purity of God, also brought with it the protection of God. Because the cloud was there by day, providing shade. And then by night, it's the pillar of fire. And again, if you've been in any desert context, warm by day, freezing at night. Because there's no clouds there to keep the heat in. It's freezing. Baltic, if you want to call it that. You die out there. So what's the fire doing? Providing heat and it's providing light. So the tabernacle, the presence of God, the purity of God, also is a witness to the protection of God. That the people that are surrounded that could sleep well at night and they could look at it and know that God was with them. It was a witness. The psalmist describes this perfectly. Let's look at Psalm 121. Because this is what's in the psalmist's mind, I think. Psalm 121, verse number 5. The Lord is thy keeper, the Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. He shall preserve thy soul. The Lord shall preserve thy going out, thy coming in from this time forth, even forevermore. Verse 5, the Lord is thy keeper, thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. What is that picture? It's picture in the presence of God with his people in the wilderness. The cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. So God is behind this and he's shown himself to the people. It's a place of worship, of organized worship, and they needed that but it's also a place of witness that they could know that God was with them and the tabernacle was at the center of the camp, that he was at the very center of their community. He was there. His presence was there. His purity was there. And his protection was there. And his provision was there, that cloud, as I've said. So God was with them. In the tabernacle. So to the people, it would have just filled their souls with joy. To know that they could look and see that God was with them. That's the immediate purpose. But what about the ultimate purpose? Because the immediate purpose for those Jews there, they needed that. They needed to know God was with them. They needed a place of worship. And we'll go into the organization of that worship in the Levitical system. But there's an ultimate purpose of the tabernacle. And it wasn't just for there. It's for here, for now, for next year, for the year after, for each and every generation that has walked under uh, the name of the Lord. Turn to Hebrews chapter number 9. So again, we go back to Hebrews, and we're going to do Hebrews uh, uh, back and forth a bit over this. Hebrews chapter number 9. And verse number one. So again, we're thinking that now we're moving. What are we moving from? We're moving from what was the immediate purpose. And now Hebrews is going to tell us what the ultimate purpose was. Hebrews 9, verse number one. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first, 
wherein was the candlestick, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer, the ark of the covenant, overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubims of glory, shadow, and the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of his people. The Holy Ghost thus signifying that the way unto the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. Verse 9, which was a figure for the time. It had an immediate purpose, but an ultimate purpose was being revealed in it, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect, as pertaining the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. So the writer of Hebrews takes us back to the immediate purpose of the tabernacle, takes us through it, says that it was there for this role and sacrifice that people could approach God but that ultimately it stood as a shadow or a picture of the one who would come, the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 11, being Christ, come of a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. Verse 12 goes on to say, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So the ultimate purpose of the tabernacle is to draw our attention to the fact that this system didn't provide a full and final and finished way to God. That in fact it was just showing the people that actually they needed another. That the high priest that they had couldn't cut it. That the Aaronic order, the Mosaic Levitical order wasn't enough that it needed a priest from a different order, a better order, an eternal order, a priest after the order of Melchizedek is the teaching throughout the Old and New Testament. That this tent, this place of worship and witness that showed them God and his presence with them was also revealing the need for an ultimate saviour and the fact that that saviour would come. This was almost like a, a down payment, a shadow, a type, a picture that was showing them, that gathered, that what they had wasn't enough, that they needed something else that they couldn't do in and of themselves, that actually they needed a redeemer. His name was the Lord and when he came, all those things would be fulfilled. These pictures would be shown beautifully and wonderfully in the truth of who Jesus is and what he done in Calvary's cross. And I took you through that, I think, where Jesus came and he presented his own blood. He was not just the offerer, the priest, but he was also the offering. That's something that the priest could not do. 
See, when the high priest came in, especially in the Day of Atonement, into the very Holy of Holies, once a year he could go in, and it was by an animal's blood, and he came as the offerer. But when Jesus entered into the tabernacle in the heavenlies, he came in as the offerer, as the high priest, and he offered himself, and it was acceptable before God because it was perfect, it was pure, and then God said, it's done, it's finished, it's ratified once for all, forever. And that picture in the Old Testament is done, it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He's the ultimate purpose of the tabernacle. So when we consider the tabernacle, it is, it is the person and picture of Jesus and his work and his testimony that we're seeing a shadow of. This is the place I believe that Jesus would have stopped and taught those in the Emmaus Road, those disciples around them, of who he truly was. So the ultimate purpose is a shadow that when we look at it, we want to see Jesus, that he is the perfect tabernacle. He's the fulfillment of all that is pictured in the wilderness. He's the perfect tabernacle. Not only is he the perfect tabernacle, he's the perfect priest. Not only is he the perfect offering, he's the perfect offerer. His priesthood is impeccable. And when we think about the uh, tabernacle. Let me see. So this is the ultimate purpose. The revealed Christ is the perfect priest. The revealed Christ as the perfect tabernacle. And when we think about the tabernacle and we think about Christ as the perfect priest, we'll see, and we're going to see this. This is a little snapshot of what we're going to have a look at. I'll, I'll get it up in, in the thing. It is the perfect priest. He exercises the ministry of introduction. He does this at the gate, you're going to see that the gate pictures Christ, pictures the four Gospels, it pictures Jesus as the way into the presence of God. So there's a ministry of introduction. I'm the way. I'm the gate. Then we get to the brazen altar, the place of sacrifice. And this is the perfect priesthood of Christ in his ministry of reconciliation. We move on to the brazen laver. This is the place where the priest, after the sacrifice had been made, that they would wash their hands and their feet, talking about their walk and their witness, their work, before they would ever get into the holy place that was segregated off. So Christ in his perfect ministry, um, as perfect priest, ministers to us the ministry of separation. This is sanctification, setting apart that we come in through Christ, that we uh, come to Calvary's cross, that he's the offering. And then because of that, we can go a little bit further and we can be sanctified, set apart. And that's what the brazen uh, labor was for. Then you get inside a little bit and you have the menorah. And that's the ministry of illumination, the golden candlestick. You have the, the showbread, you know, Christ himself, when he ministers, you get into John especially deals with this. You know, it's no coincidence that John deals with this because he's dealing with the deity of Christ, but he's dealing with Christ as the way. He's dealing with Christ as the truth and he's dealing with Christ as the life. Christ says, I'm the light of the world. That's one of the things that he teaches. 
What's he pointing to? He's pointing to the menorah and the light of the menorah. And when you're in, the, in, in a relationship with God, you've entered in, you've come to the place of sacrifice, Christ's sacrifice, that you've accepted that, that you've had the sanctification, you're separated. You can go into fellowship with God and here you have light. There's no windows in here. There's no natural light. The light that's provided is candlelight. It's the same of the Holy Spirit and the light that is given. And Christ is the minister of that, the one that gives that light. Then you have the table of bread. What does Christ teach in John? John John chapter 6, I think it is, is one of the most radical chapters where Christ is saying, Eat me. I'm the bread of life. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. And the Jews are losing their mind at this. See, what kind of... Savagery is this. But of course he's not teaching physically, he's teaching spiritual. And the table of showbread is that, that when you're entered in, that God is providing the light, God is providing the food, he's sustaining you, he's illuminating you, and then you move to the altar of incense, that's the place where prayers are given up. This is Christ's ministry of intercession. If he gives you life and light, he gives you the Holy Spirit to illuminate you. That he's the bread of life that spiritually he sustains you. And then you have the altar of incense as his ministry of intercession that he ever lives to make intercession for you. And then we get to the Ark of the Covenant and this is Christ's ministry as the perfect priest of communion that we can go in there. That place that represented that you want to let, let me let me let me say this to you. When this is on the earth, this little square box, and we'll do the measurements when we get there, tiny, is the most holiest place on the earth at that point in time. The most holiest place. This is the condensed cube in which the presence of God dwelt. And the priest could only go in once a year and he went in petrified. All the others could do was watch. The priests were in there and they could watch. The congregation was around and they could watch. But because of Christ's perfect ministry, that ministry of introduction, that ministry of reconciliation, that ministry of separation and illumination, that ministry of satisfaction through the showbread, that ministry of intercession through the altar of incense, We have a ministry of communion with the Lord given by Jesus that we can go right in there. Christ, he was the priest, he was the sacrifice, he was the one who offered, he was also the offering. So the tabernacle, this design given by God to Moses. This simplistic design, yet simplistic and from the outside looked like nothing. From the inside, we're going to see was spectacular. But it wasn't about the things, it was about what the things pointed to. So yes, there was an immediate purpose. Number one, it was to be a place of worship. They needed that. they just come out of Egypt and they needed to know how to worship their God in an organized way. Because God is a God of order. And he prescribes how he wants to be worshipped. That's what the tabernacle was for, is a place of worship. But part of that, also, it was a place of witness. 
that the people could know that God was with them. When they looked there, they knew God was with them. They seen the pillar of the cloud by day, the fire by night. They seen the priests going about doing the sacrifice. They looked upon it and they knew their God was with them. It also pointed to the purity of God because they knew that they just couldn't run into God because they were sinful people. That actually those that could come before God had to come through the blood of another because sin had to be paid for. Atonement had to be made. So the place itself, and we're going to get into it when we get into the sacrifices, you know, there's a, there's a reverence of this because there's death at the door of the tabernacle. And the people would have knew that God is holy. Not to be trifled with, not to be messed with, not to be mocked, and certainly not to be conformed into an image made by men. It was also a witness of the protection of God. Like I've said, the pillar and the, of cloud, or fire by night and the cloud by day. God was with them. Because he was with them, he was the providing God. They had obviously the manna, but the fire provided heat at night and the cloud provided shade at day. So they knew that God was with them. They knew that God was holy, but yet they could somehow approach that holy God, even if it was in a corporate sense that the sins of the nation were being presented. But they knew that God was with them. So the design given by God to Moses had its immediate purpose. But God is is so amazing that everything he does that has immediate truth often has this picture and shadow that ultimately leads us and points us to his redemptive program and purposes and ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. The ultimate purpose of the tabernacle was to reveal Christ as the perfect tabernacle. And of course we can look back and we can see that. And also to reveal Christ as the perfect priest that he could do what no other priest could do. And he did do what no other priest uh, could do. So as we think about the tabernacle, we've set out now, we've had a look at the panorama, just had a look around it. We've also now had a look at the purpose of it. What we're going to do, Lord willing, next Sunday afternoon, is we're going to now zoom down in and we're going to have to look at the structure of the tabernacle itself and start to think about looking at the pieces of furniture therein. But what we'll do is we'll leave it there. I trust that you've been encouraged to further further study the tabernacle and are prepared for seeing the Lord Jesus in all of these things. Let's pray.